Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you would bow your heads and your hearts with me, please. Our Father, as we approach your word this morning, would you remind us of your words to Joshua? When you said, do not turn to the right or to the left, and do not, do not go away from the words of the book of this law, but follow it and meditate on it day and night, so that your way may be successful. Would you remind us of the life-giving nature of your word, Lord? And would you give us life this morning? Without your word, we have death. Without your word, we have no direction. Without your word, we have no power. Without your word, we don't have anything that we need for life and godliness. And even in the life of Joshua, we have seen, Father, what your word does. At the very end of the book, your servant Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Be it the God of the Amorites, be it the God of the pagans, be it any other gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was the effect of your word on Joshua. And so, Lord, would you do a similar work in our hearts today, that you would take your word, that you would ingrain it into our hearts, that we will be resolved to persevere in walking under your loving authority for the rest of our lives until Jesus returns or you call us home. Would you do that in our hearts today? And if there are any people who have, who have yet to yield themselves to your word and to bow before your loving authority and to give their lives to Jesus Christ, would you, would you do that in their hearts and in their lives this very day? Father, would you show yourself powerful and strong to save and sanctify people right now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Colossians. If you will look at Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and 23 will be our text for today. We are going deeper in our sermon series. We've gone deeper in the gospel, deeper in gratefulness, deeper in the knowledge of God, deeper in Jesus Christ by studying Christology, parts 1 and part 2, the last two weeks in verses 15 to 20. And now we get to verses 21 to 23. Beginning in verse 21, this is Paul's words to the Colossian church. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became 
a minister. So I'm, I'm not quite 40 years old yet. That day is coming this year. But though I am relatively young, I have seen a lot of quitting, a lot of failing, and a lot of falling away from Christianity in my lifetime. I, I have seen pastors that walk away from Christian Orthodox teaching and go to heresy for the rest of their lives. I have seen seminary professors walk away from the faith and become out-and-out out heretics and just deny the faith altogether. I've seen Sunday school teachers who worked for years who then just give up the church and watch football and go fishing on every Sunday and don't darken the doors of a church. I, I have seen friends who profess Christ and we're the first people to pray in a class who no longer even espouse the name of Jesus Christ. I've seen that. I've seen it. Walking away from Christianity is actually popular these days. It's, it's in vogue. Just read the internet. I want to read to you a large portion of an article that I have read by writer Jessica Wisner. She's a contributor to a site called BuzzFeed. And the title of this article is called Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. It's long, so just hunker down. A shiver hopscotches up my spine. The air is sticky and hot in this school gym in Florida, soaking the underarms of my T-shirt. Loud music rubs its way through the air. I'm 16, and I'm just learning how to desire. My desire at that moment was for Jesus, at, or as 30-year-old me wants to declare in hindsight what I earnestly believed was Jesus. Whatever it was, it was powerful enough to bring a girl who grew up in a non-church-growing family to a sweaty school gym for a youth group every week, and binding enough to yoke me to a conservative faith for most of my formative years. From age 17 to about age 23, I was a born-again Christian, something I'm usually embarrassed to admit here in New York City. To use the jargon of my former life, I became a believer in Christ shortly after my mom got saved. My Ohio-bred parents had grown up in a Catholic household and, suffering from organized religion hangovers, raised me and my sister totally unchurched. That is, until we moved to Florida. A friend invited my mom to her sprawling Southern Baptist megachurch where she prayed to accept Jesus. My sister and I did the same soon after. My dad, then and now, remained unconvinced. I made a lot of mistakes in my six years as a Christian, some of them cringier than others. Once at a college party, I tried to convince people not to drink by asking them to think deep thoughts about why they drank. A beneficial thing to ponder, probably, but not, not one undergrads are, are dying to muse on between keg stands. I ran for chaplain of my sorority, mostly so I could surreptitiously proselytize. In 2004, I voted for George W. Bush. I'm not the only millennial with what author John Jeremiah Sullivan calls a Jesus phase. I've talked to scores of people in all walks of life who also used to go on mission trips and know all the words to, Lord, I lift your name on high. Probably good we didn't sing that one this morning, Phil. <laughs> Statistically, exiting your Jesus phase is also a real phenomenon. According to polling organization, the Barna Group, 
there's a 43% drop in Christian church attendance between the teen years and the early adult years. Statistics show that younger people are currently leaving evangelicalism at faster rates than older people, which many credit to differing beliefs on topics such as same-sex marriage. For me, it was a traditional soul and spirit crusher, graduate school. After college, I moved to Connecticut to study religion at Yale. Now, she goes on to talk much about her experience at Yale, which I will, I will uh, omit for time's sake. And so she says, more and more, I realized that the Bible was a flawed, messy, deeply human book, and that in treating it as unimpeachable guidebook for life in the 21st century, many conservative Christians were basing their entire worldviews on a text that, in my opinion, wasn't that much different from any other historical collection of letters and stories. I was forced to confront the fact that I'd converted into a prefab worldview, one hatched largely in recent American history from Jonathan Edwards and the theology of the Great Awakening, and one that family values politics has buoyed through modern decades. This was something the evangelical students in my program at Yale talked about often. The behemoth of doubt that sets in as your airtight hermeneutic of Scripture is drained from the bottom. Christians from other traditions didn't have it so bad. Catholics, for example, could fall in the same academic dunk tank and emerge with the same doubts about Scripture, but at least they could still lean on other things their denomination held sacred and used to interpret the text like the catechism, papal infallibility, the sacraments. We evangelicals, with our infallible view of Scripture ripped from our hands, were left gasping for air. If you crumble and toss out a literal reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for your sins? Losing Jesus, someone I talked to both hunched over in prayer groups and in the darkness of my bedroom, felt like losing a friend, even if he was an imaginary one all along. Many people would call this a good thing, this kicking of the opiate of the masses habit, and I would too, putting on my existential big girl pants, confronting the fact that God didn't get me through any hard times. I did. Considering that he heaven isn't a gentle ledge I can lean my elbow on when confronted with the sadness of death. These were hard truths to swallow, but like tablespoons of fish oil, they were good for me. So my secret is this. Even though I staked my life on an arbitrary historical document for six years, I liked who I was when I was born again. I woke up each day determined to conquer my sinful nature. My id that was prone to thinking only about myself and determined to put others first. I was more selfless. I was a more caring and giving friend back then. I listened deeply instead of waiting for my turn to talk. I prayed for people and made care packages and wrote nice letters and I volunteered. With a divine outlet compelling me to focus on something besides self-preservation, I felt free from the prison of ego. Which isn't to say that I can't do any of those things now. Today I can go to a beautiful and inspiring concerts instead of worship service. I can join a weekly book club instead of a Bible study to find community. I can still volunteer at the same homeless shelters and make the same care packages. I want desperately and intellectually to believe that you can feel those selfless feelings and be this others-focused person in secular minds and realms. But that omnipresent inner light or whatever it was that compelled Christian me 
as Jesus says in Luke to deny myself daily, has long flickered out. I know, oh, I think, that Christianity isn't real. But I miss believing it was real. When I got confused in my career or hurt by a broken relationship, fellow Christians assured me that it was all part of God's plan to lead me to the right calling or the right person, something that made me calmer and more willing to take risks. Now when things don't go the way I want, I cling to a vague, everything happens for a reason sentiment, or confront the fact that maybe life is meaningless, because now I can't view trauma as just a rolling ball in some cosmic Rube Goldberg machine. Some days I wake up in my bedroom in Brooklyn, and I just don't know what to do in an existential sense. Christianity gave me something to do. A large reason I converted to the faith as a teen was because I felt a weird void in my life, like something was missing that no relationship or amount of money or enviable career could fill. The Christian message was packaged and sold to me as the only thing that could fill that void, and for six years, I let it. Maybe that warm feeling I miss is the true scary part of religion, that it can become this numbing hive, mind of false comfort that brainwashes at best. Agnostic might be too clinical a word for my current beliefs. Apathetic is probably more accurate. My mom and sister have also cooled down in their levels of orthodoxy, so luckily leaving the faith didn't make me a familial black sheep the way it does for many people. But sometimes I still feel that weird, that weird void tugging across my stomach like jam spread on toast. Sometimes it's when I'm walking outside at night and a warm breeze whispers past my ears and flashes of summer nights from years past flick into my mind. I felt it on Ocean Beach in San Francisco recently as fog inched its way along the horizon. And as I stared out at it, I felt a wave of something truly ineffable, a surreal flutter in my soul that the world was vast and overwhelming and rich and meaningful and also not really meaningful at all. In my born-again days... I flew from Florida to New York City for a missions trip. I was 18, and my earnest Christian comrades and I set up a table offering free prayer against a wall in the Union Square subway station. Free prayer! I screamed at the streams of jaded New Yorkers who walked past wearing a Campus Crusade for Christ t-shirt and waving a neon-colored flyer with Bible verses. The most enthusiastic passersby smiled thinly. That was 12 years ago. Now, I'm one of the thin smilers. I often pass street preachers on the sidewalks of Manhattan and think of wide-eyed teenage me in that youth group gym in Florida, singing praise songs at the top of her lungs and feeling like I held this precious gift that made me so happy. I wanted to share it with everyone else in the entire world, right down to total strangers. Some. Sometimes, and socially, I missed Christianity. Intellectually, I'm okay being rid of it. Spiritually, to be honest, in a tiny crack in my soul, I'm still figuring that out. Why I miss being a born-again Christian. Now, I, I feel confident that Jessica... Does, want, does not want my pity or compassion. You can tell by the way that she writes the article. But I will tell you, after reading it three times, I have compassion for her. 
I, uh, I pity her. Um, she tasted the thrill of Christianity. She swam in the really fun and exciting pool of a Christian youth group. She knew what it was to sing songs and to go on mission trips and to have the fellowship of Christian people. And then she went to seminary after graduate school and she got her entire worldview rocked by unbelieving professors and unbelieving students and unbelieving authors. And it was just more than she could bear. And whatever faith that she did have, whatever it was, it just folded up like a cheap suit under the weight of such unbelief. And what I want to do this morning is I want to answer the question, how could that possibly happen? But I want to do that toward the end of this message. How could something like that happen? I want to answer that question. But right now, I want you to understand that people fall away from Christianity every single day. They fall away. And if you don't want to become a statistic, then you need to understand the absolute importance of fighting and contending for the faith. Now listen to what the scripture says. Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. The writer of the Hebrews said, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Paul said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. He said, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. And James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The fact is this, the Christian life is hard. It's full of temptations and trials and tribulations. And there is a real danger that people who profess Christ will grow weary in their profession. They will go weary in their circumstances. They will go weary in the fight. And what we need to do as Christians is we need to understand that we've got to run the race to the very end of the finish line. We've got to fight the fight until the last bell has rung. And if we don't, we are in danger. We are in danger. Now, praise be to God that he has not left us helpless or hopeless. All right? And so we studied the last two weeks, verses 15 to 20. And what Paul has shown us in verses 15 through 20 is that Jesus Christ is supreme. He is supreme over everything. There is not a maverick molecule in the universe. He reigns supreme over it all. He is the firstborn of all creation. All right? He he reigns over everything. He holds all things together as we sang in in the song just before I came up. And he's supreme in the church, in his love, in his reconciling power, in his mercy, in his grace that he extends to you. And so in his supremacy, we need to see him for who he is, sovereign over all. And then Paul then takes that truth and applies it to perseverance. Paul doesn't write that hymn in verses 15 to 20 just so that you and I can know some really cool facts about Jesus Christ. He writes it 
to spur us on to perseverance and to continue in the faith because he knows about the Colossian church what the Holy Spirit knows about Redeemer Church, and that is every one of us are going to be tempted to fall away, to quit running, not to remain steadfast, but to just walk away from the faith when the times get difficult. And so what I want to do right now is give you four instructions that will help you persevere in the faith. Four instructions that will help you persevere in the faith. The first instruction is remember who you were and what you did. Remember who you were and what you did. Paul starts off in verse 21 and says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It is so interesting that Paul starts off talking about their former life of sin. I was like, there are so many people, so many Christians who say, you know, I just want to forget everything about my former life. I never want to think about that whatsoever. I never want to think about the fact that I was a sinner. I never want to think about the fact that I was in hostility to God. And yet Paul is writing to a group of believers who he believes are, are encouraged in the faith. And the first thing he does is remind them about their former life of sin. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Who were you, he says. You were alienated. You were isolated. There was a massive chasm between you and God. It, it is as if you were standing on one side of the Grand Canyon, and God is all the way on the other side of the Grand Canyon. And you're trying to get to God, and yet you can't get there because there's no bridge. There's no helicopter to take you over. There's no bungee cord. There, there, there's nothing to get you over there. But, but, but what Paul would also say is not only were you isolated from God, he's way over there, and you're way over here, you weren't even trying to get to God. Look down at the text. It says that you were not only alienated, you were hostile in mind. That means you were angry. You, you were an enemy of God. You, you did not love him. You did not want him. You weren't trying to figure out every which way possible. Maybe I could go down the Grand Canyon and climb back up, or maybe I could build a bridge. No, what you were saying is, I want to be God. I'll build my own temple. I'll build my own kingdom. I am the center of my universe. That, that's what Paul is trying to say. Now listen, it is very important for us to understand that Paul isn't, he's not, writing to the Colossian prison. He's not writing to the Colossian prison. He's writing to the Colossian church. And so he's, he's not saying you were once alienated in hostile mind because I know every one of y'all are murderers and thieves and drunkards and, and uh, cheaters. No, no, no. Um, certainly the church was, had those people. But you know what kind of church the Colossian church was? It was just like Redeemer Church. It had all kinds of people in it, all kinds of people. There were 7-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, some who had been imprisoned and some who had not been imprisoned, some who had never broken uh, the speed limit in their life, and then others who had spent their life breaking the speed limit. But nevertheless, he says about every one of them, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. Now, kids, I want you guys to look up for me just a second. If you're a child, I'd like for you to just pay attention to me because right now you're thinking, I'm not hostile toward God or I've never been hostile to him. I listen to my mommy and daddy talk to me about the gospel and about these things. And no, I, I'm not like that. I just want to tell you, you are like that. Because, you know, when you go into your playroom and, and, and you've got friends over, maybe it's just your brothers and sisters, 
And you go in and you're like, I want what I want. And so I'm going to go put claim on all of these toys so that my brother or sister can't play with them because I want them. And you gather them to yourself so that nobody else can play with them. Do you know what that is? That's hostility toward God. Because you see, you're wanting to have your own kingdom. And you want to be the center of your own universe. And you're saying, me, me, me. Where God is saying, no, me, me, me. And so it doesn't matter whether you're five or whether you're 15 or 25. This applies. We have all been alienated and we're all hostile toward God in our mind. And because of that, because we want our personal glory and not God's glory, look at what Paul says that we did. Doing evil deeds. And that's what happens. When when you think wrongly about God, you're then going to rebel against the laws and principles of God. That's just the way it is. I've said it numerous times. You you, uh, do what you do and say what you say because you think what you think. And you think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, his word, and the gospel. It all flows from what you believe. And when you were not a Christian, when you did not have faith in him and you were at the center of your universe, you began to do evil deeds because that is the outworking of what you actually believed. I'm the most important. I'm the most significant. Life is about me. Life is about me fulfilling my dreams, getting what I want, being the center of attention, um, feeling fulfilled, all of those things. Now, now parents and, and adults, the sad thing is sometimes even after we profess Christ, we still keep thinking that way. We, we still th- keep thinking that, that people exist in order to fulfill my desires to meet my needs to make me feel happy. That is not what life is about. It is about the glory of God. It is about the holiness of God. And it is our joy in his glory and our joy in his holiness. Okay? And so whenever we revert back to that, we're thinking more like a non-Christian than a Christian. But this is what Paul is saying. If you're going to persevere in the faith, if you're not going to walk away from Christianity and, 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 and turn into a person like Jessica Weisner, the first thing that you need to do is remember who you were and what you did. And so right now, if you're a Christian, I want you to remember who you were and what you did. Who were you? What did you do? Because... Paul's about to draw our attention to the second instruction and we have to know who we were and what we did before we can appreciate it. Okay, look down at the text. The second instruction is rejoice in who Christ is and what Christ did. Rejoice in who Christ is and what Christ did. Paul says, he, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, for those of you who have your open Bibles, I want you to take observation of two little words that could go unnoticed in this verse. Two little words that are in juxtaposition of one another. Anybody see two little words that are in juxtaposition to one another? Yes, now, that's right, yes. So, so the first word at the beginning was once, 
And Mark points out that the second word is now. Once and now, once and now, once and now, once and now. Paul does this over and over and over in his 13 letters. He talks about your once life, your former life, and now he talks about your current life, your now life. Paul does that constantly in his letters, which tells us that's a really important thing to do. It's important to see where we've been and where we are now. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to do in order to persevere in the faith. And he says, okay, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, let's trace he. Let's just put our Bible study glasses on and let's trace the word he back to who it is that Paul is actually referring to. Somebody see, not back to a pronoun, but back to an actual title. Anybody see it? Well, if you look down even a little bit closer, look at verse 13. Yes. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, verse 3 might also match it uh, there, Ron. But the beloved son of the Father is who he's referring to. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The beloved son of God, the eternal son of God. All right? That's who has done this. And what we want to do is we want to rejoice in who he is and what he has done. All right? And so we have to understand that what Paul is referring to here is the incarnation of the Son of God, the beloved Son of God, and the substitution. Matter of fact, I'm just going to tell you guys this. I just kind of put together not an equation but, but a formula, all right? And so the incarnation plus the substitution equals reconciliation. The incarnation plus substitution equals reconciliation. That's what this verse is saying. So in other words, the Son of God, who is God the Son, who lived an eternity past with His Father and with the Spirit, took on human flesh, became a man, walked in actual humanity, and He knew all the trials and temptations and issues and problems that humans feel. He did that, but He walked perfectly. He walked righteously. He, he, he walked sinlessly and blamelessly and, 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 and in purity. Uh, he, he, he spoke words of truth and he never lied. He loved people. He never hated them. He cared for people. He never ignored them. He showed compassion on them. He never was callous toward them. He walked righteously according to the rules and laws and principles of God's word all the way to the very end. He was the incarnate man, the perfect man. And that, that's what he's saying here. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh. And then he says, by his death, he substitutes himself for us. And this is just gospel truth, y'all. Probably everybody in this building knows this truth right here. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's called the great exchange. We exchange our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. He exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He takes on our guilt, we take on his guiltlessness. He takes on our sin, we take on his purity. 
He takes on our issues, our idolatry, and we take on his perfect relationship with the Father. We just, that great exchange happens, and it happened at the cross when Jesus is hanging there. He is bleeding on our behalf, and he is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is so that God could call people like you and me into his kingdom. Okay? And so we need to rejoice in who Christ is and what he has done. He has substituted himself for us, and that has brought reconciliation with God. Now, the word reconcile here, reconcile, so it, it is a word that's not used that often in the New Testament. It's a unique word for reconcile. It's a compound word. It means really reconciled. It's not just reconciled. It's really reconciled. It's taking it's taking someone who has been out of fellowship with God and bringing them into fellowship with God. It is restoring a broken relationship. That, that's what it is. Full restoration, full redemption, full enjoyment of a relationship. That's what this reconciliation has done. And Jesus Christ is the one who has done that for you and me. We didn't do it. We didn't work ourselves to get there. We, we didn't earn enough brownie points in order to be in good graces with God. We didn't build a bridge across the Grand Canyon finally to say, ah, I finally built it. I finally made it. I'm here. I'm glad I did it, God. No, God is saying, listen, you didn't do anything. You built no bridge. You, you rode no helicopter. You, you didn't do anything to get over here. But my son came and he did all of the work. And all you had to do is exercise faith in him. And now you're reconciled to me. Praise him. And so rejoice in who Christ is and what Christ did because if it weren't for Christ, we would not have been reconciled. The third instruction is revel in who you are and what you'll become. Revel in who you are and what you will become. Now, I, I chose that R word carefully because I, I almost put recognize, just recognize who you are, and what you'll become. Because recognition is seeing it, right? It's, it's, it's understanding the reality of those things. But I want to use the word revel because there's a celebration. There's an excitement that must play, take place when you understand, number one, who you are, and then what you're going to become one day. Let's read the text. It says, listen, he, he has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, if you just take, take a look down at verses 21 and 22, and I just want to ask you a simple question that comes from the text. Why has God reconciled you? Why has Jesus substituted himself to reconcile you? To present us holy and blameless and above reproach in the Father's sight. That's why. Y'all, I think that we have embraced in a big way the fact that Jesus gets us out of hell. We have embraced the fact that we are no longer under condemnation. We have embraced the fact that we no longer have this weight and this guilt that is hanging over us so that when we enter the divine courtroom, and, and God looks at us, he's going to be able to strike the gavel and say, not guilty, based upon the substitutionary work of my son, not guilty, I declare you righteous, come in to the joy that I have. I think we've embraced all of that. 
But I think there's an aspect, church, where we have not embraced one of the primary reasons that God has reconciled us. To be holy, to be blameless, to be above reproach. That is one of God's primary reasons why he reconciles us to himself. We are so excited about our liberties. We are so excited about what we can go out and do, what we can be, what convictions we can hold, how we can prioritize things in life that are really fun. We're so excited about exercising our freedoms. And we are so bored by becoming holy like God is holy. This is sin. This is sin. I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be blameless? Do you want to be above reproach in your life? Do you want to be like God? Because I I don't think that people, people who don't want to be like God don't go to heaven. But in church today, there are plenty of people who profess to be saved but they still hate God and they still hate His holiness and they care nothing about purity and they care nothing about blamelessness. I want to tell you from the scriptures today, that is a contradiction of terms. You cannot hate God and be a Christian and you cannot despise His holiness and think somehow that you are saved and are going to be found blameless and above reproach on that day. And so revel in who you are and what you become. Hey, listen, read the book of Revelation. Read the book of Revelation, and you see multiple songs where multitudes are gathered around the throne, and they're looking at the Lamb, and they're looking at the Lord God Almighty, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They are they're absolutely in awe, and they're in wonder of this magnificent sight of holiness and blamelessness, and it's above reproachness. And they're saying, I love Him. I want Him, and I want to be like Him, and I want to embody all that He is in His purity, and in His love, and in His grace, and in His righteousness, and in His holiness. Let me have Him. That is the desire of somebody who's been converted from a former life of hostility and enmity toward God to reconciliation with a holy and great God. And so revel in who you are and what you will become. Finally, and fourth, remain in the faith with daily resolve. Remain in the faith with daily resolve. Travis, would you go open the back doors, please? There's some rocks out there. It'd be great. It's really hot. Remain in the faith with daily resolve. I'm going to read the text again. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Keep your eyes on the text. Keep your eyes on the text. The the first two words, church. What are the first two words of this section? Talk to me. If indeed, thank you, thank you, if indeed. Folks, this is a true if indeed. This is not 
a, a phrase that is empty. It's not something that the Apostle Paul throws in there and just says, I'm just going to throw the word if in there just to maybe create some curiosity, just to create some intrigue, just to create some, some systematic theology books that are going to be thrown out of whack um, uh, for years to come. No, he, he puts if indeed because it is reality, if indeed you continue in the faith. And so I think we need to observe the if indeed there. Now, this is what he's getting to. He said, if you continue in the faith, now the, the definition of continuing would be keep on keeping on. If you just keep on keeping on in the faith. But look down at the text because we have three descriptors, three ways to describe what it means to continue in the faith. He uses the word stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. All of these terms are building terms. They're construction terms. You guys ever built a house or you ever built a deck or anything that required a foundation? Even when I was studying this week and I was kind of doing my underlining and highlighting and all of those things, I just I, I actually drew a foundation underneath those three words and then uh, kind of layered some cement and then put some rebar down in there under those words. You, you get a kick out of my drawing uh, on that. But, but I was writing all of that in and putting the drawing because that's exactly what Paul has in mind, that we would be rooted that we'd be grounded, that we'd be established, that we would be on a strong foundation in our faith as we remain there. And so, how do you do that? How do you do that? He says, not shifting from what, guys? The, that's right, the gospel. The gospel that you heard. Now, I want to give you some ways to remain in the faith with daily resolve. And then I want to address the question that I asked, and we'll, we'll conclude. All right, so, so you're thinking to yourself, all right, I need to remember who I was and what I did. I need to rejoice in who he is and what he's done. I, I, I need to, um, what, keep in mind, how do I phrase that? Um, yeah, revel, revel in who you are and what you're going to become. But now, how do I need to remain? How do I need to remain in the faith? And so I want to give you that answer right here. The first thing is, learn the gospel message thoroughly. Learn the gospel message thoroughly. Parents, I would encourage you to, to have one sheet of paper that gives the gospel from beginning to end and to post it on your refrigerator or for you homeschoolers, post it in your schoolroom or... For, uh, for you parents who send your kids to school, uh, laminate it and have it in their notebook. But, but have the gospel message on one sheet of paper that you're looking at regularly and that you're memorizing regularly. God, man, Christ, response. Learn the gospel. Find the most critical gospel passages in the scriptures about the greatness and glory and love and holiness of God and about the sinfulness and wretchedness and rebellion of man and about the perfect work and, and life and resurrection and, and future return of Jesus Christ and then the response that all sinners need to have in order to be saved. Find those passages, put it on a sheet of paper and put it before your family all the time because you need to know the gospel. Listen, Paul doesn't say continue in the faith by focusing on tertiary things in the Christian religion. 
continue in the faith by getting one thing that you're really excited about in the faith and just go after that, whether it be the right of human life or whether it be uh, the, the authority of God or whether it be some other thing that you're really excited about. No, he says, focus on the gospel. Focus on the gospel. Remain steadfast in the gospel. So we've got to learn the gospel message thoroughly. And so we've got to re recite it constantly. The second thing is pray through the gospel daily. Pray through the gospel daily. And if any of y'all hang around me very much, you know that I do this regularly. I mean, we might be, we might be eating lunch at Frontera, and, and you know, it's, it's God, thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect work. Thank you for his powerful resurrection. Thank you for his future return, and thank you for this food I'm in. You know, it's just, I just want to recite the gospel in my prayers regularly because the more I recite him in my prayers, the more he's warming my heart toward him and the more I'm thanking him for the great work that he's done in my life. Okay? So, so pray through the gospel message daily, whether it be in the morning, during the day, at night, or all of the above. Sing the gospel message gladly. Sing it. Hiya. I've got an iPhone, and on my iPhone, I've got, uh, I've got iTunes. And I, I've got a lot of gospel music. And it is not uncommon for me to wake up in the morning and go take a shower and just pop it on a Sovereign Grace song or Sons and Daughters. If you guys are familiar with Sons and Daughters from Sovereign Grace, just click it on there and just listen to that as I'm taking a shower, getting ready for the day. Or to pop it in my car and just sing songs about the risen Christ. Or, 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 or take a, a Chris Tomlin album and just as I'm running around or at, the, at Snap Fitness and just listening to gospel songs and rejoicing. As I, as I run and as I sing. But sing the gospel message gladly. Let me give you another example, another way. Read gospel books. We give out to all our visitors two, two different books. They can choose theirs. It's, it's either The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney or What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Man, you need to read gospel books. Like, it's good to read books on, on teaching and on parenting and, and on uh, marriage, it's good to read those books, but it is great to read gospel books. They're just going to remind you over and over of the, of the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. So I encourage you to do that. Read gospel books. Hang around gospel people. Hang around gospel people. One of the reasons that we do fellowship meal is that some of us don't have a lot of gospel fellowship. All right, some of us live in the working world, some of us have unbelieving family members. Some of us have a lot of unbelieving friends, and we don't get a lot of gospel conversation. And so we come to church on Sundays, and we, we listen to the Word, we sing the Word, we pray through the Word, we think about the gospel and all of that, but for the rest of the week, we're around people who don't talk about the gospel, who don't love the gospel, who don't rejoice in the gospel, who don't play gospel music. And so we want to hang around one another as much as we can so that we can encourage one another in the glorious message that God saves through Christ. Let me give you another one. Listen to gospel sermons. Listen to gospel sermons. I didn't say just listen to sermons. Listen to gospel sermons. Sermons that preach the good news of salvation in Christ. And I will tell you, I'm convinced that to some degree the gospel should be in every sermon. The gospel should be in every lesson. You can't teach the Bible accurately unless the gospel is there. Because we understand it through the gospel. We understand it through what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then finally, on how to continue in the faith here, your, 
You can just write one word for each of these. Remember. Remember who you were and what you did. Rejoice. Rejoice in who he is and what he did. Revel. Revel in who you are now and what you'll become then. And remain. Remain in the faith with daily resolve. How? By learning the gospel, praying the gospel, singing the gospel, reading the gospel, hanging around gospel people, listening to gospel sermons. This is how you remain in the faith. You guys are doing really good. Uh, Thank you. So I just want to ask the question, how do you explain a Christian falling away? How do you explain a Christian falling away? I think that there are three basic answers that people give. Three basic answers that people give. The first answer is that um, a person like Jessica is a carnal Christian. So she accepted Christ, she prayed the prayer, she got baptized, she raised her hands during singing, she went on mission trips. God saved her, but she kind of has gone to New York, she's lost her way, she's become a little bit jaded, she's a little bit discouraged, she's a little bit confused. But God is still holding on to her, and God still cares for her because she prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and was baptized, and so that, nothing can take away from that. She just doesn't profess Christ right now. But at the end, God is definitely going to bring her into his kingdom because at one point she trusted Christ. She's just carnal. She's just callous. That, that's one explanation. The second explanation is that she's lost her salvation. She, she had salvation. She she had it, she experienced it, she tasted it, she did the good works, she sang the songs, she prayed the prayers, she loved the people, she handed out the care packages, she spent her own money on these mission trips, she did all of this stuff, she even put out a poster, you know, it said free prayer, free prayer. I mean, this, this girl was zealous, but what happened is, is when she went to seminary and she was confronted with all of this unbelief, academic world kind of stuff, she became jaded and unbelieving and she even though she was born again she became unborn again and even though she was saved she got unsaved and even though Christ had brought her to himself in reconciliation where there was a restored relationship and he had his arms around her very tightly somehow she wiggled out from underneath the love and the care of of Jesus Christ that would be the second way to interpret it The third way to interpret what happened with someone like Jessica is that she never was a Christian in the first place. She never was a Christian in the first place. And I think that there are believers and probably some in the building today who would read an article like that and listen to all of the decisions and the activities and the zeal and the passion that one Jessica Wisner had and say, there is no way a person like that was not a Christian. And this is just what I would say. Christianity is not just a way of life. 
Christianity is not having a void in your heart filled. It's not what it is. Christianity is about falling on your knees and worshiping a Savior who is supreme over everything and supreme inside the church. He is sovereign over all, and you bow to His sovereignty in glad submission because He entered life, became a man, lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose from the dead, and is going to one day return and reign forever and ever and ever. That's what being a Christian is. It's bowing to Christ. And so you can get goosebumps when you sing, or you can go on a mission trip and feel really good about what you do. You can have all of these things going on, but if you are not engaged with the one who has reconciled you to himself, then what you have is nothing but a facade. It is nothing but a superficial religion that looks really cool and really loving, but in reality, it'll all be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. And so church today, I want to ask you, do you love Christ? I'm not asking you, are you a Christian? I'm asking you, do you love Christ? When you go to bed at night, do you think about Christ? When you get up in the morning, do you think about Christ? Not what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Not whether you should lie or tell the truth. Not whether you should commit adultery or not commit adultery. Not not whether you should divorce your husband or not divorce your husband. But do you think about Jesus Christ? Because when you think about Christ and all that he is and all that he's done in your life, then everything else just falls into place, so to speak. Now, let us not think that we are above falling away. I want you to take Colossians and turn over to chapter 4, verse 14. Paul is giving his goodbyes and his greetings. He's going by and saying all these guys who are with him and who love him and love the Colossian church. It's a beautiful thing. I can't wait to get there in a few months. But he says in verse 14... Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does who? Demas. Demas is with Paul, the greatest missionary, the greatest Christian, the greatest preacher of the gospel, the one maybe who's loved Christ more than anybody since Christ lived on earth. He's with him. He's beside him. He's encouraging Paul. He's encouraging the the Colossian church. This is written in about A.D. 60. And Paul says, Demas greets you, church. Demas loves you, church. Demas is committed to you, church. Now turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote. He's on his deathbed. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And look at verse 9. This is eight years after he wrote Colossians. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Oh, what a difference eight years can make. Demas is in Scripture encouraging the Colossian church. 
And eight years later, he is deserting the Apostle Paul because he is in love with this present world. Church, stand warned today. Stand cautioned. Take heed lest you fall. He'll come up. If you would bow your heads, bow your hearts. I want to be very clear, very clear right now. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. But I also want to be clear. Do you have it? Do you love Christ? Does your heart resonate with the glory and the supremacy of the Savior? Have you given all that you are and all that you have to Jesus Christ? Have you exchanged all that you are and all that you have for all that He has and all that He is? Have you done that in your life? Because I will tell you, if all you have is a Christian family, if all you have is a Bible on your countertop, if all you have are some some tertiary just just shallow prayers. If all you have is going to church three out of four Sundays a month, if all you have is a bumper sticker on your car, if all you have is a couple of memorized verses, and you don't have the fellowship of a Savior who has bled and died for you, then you don't have Him. And so would you call on this Savior today Would you see in Him that which is beautiful and excellent and glorious and worthy of your life? And would you fall before Him in worship and ask Him that through the Gospel to hold you fast until that day comes? Because He has promised to you just like He has promised to me that no one will snatch Him, snatch them out of His hand if they have truly called on the name of Jesus Christ.